Mellon needs much of an introduction for us, so it's great to have him here. And hopefully, before he leaves, he'll be back again with us. So thank you very much, Father Song, for being here. I figured, I'll, since I'm here four years in June, before I leave in June, I thought I'd give at least one class. So today I'm going to inflict one lecture on you. You have never done me any harm. <laughs> we will start with the prayer, the angelic prayer par excellence, which the seraphim taught us in the temple in Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 6. The first part of it comes from this passage. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of our might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The topic of angels at once brings wonder to our minds. There's a lot of misunderstandings in the world today. Some people think if you become holy, you become an angel. I remember the story about this young girl who said to her mom, Mom, are there any men in heaven? And her mother said, Well, I think so. Why do you ask? She says, Because I've never seen an angel with a beard. <laughs> It'll happen, but you'll be a close shave. <laughs> belief, we become, we do not become angels, we remain who we are, body and soul, members of the human race. But we do sometimes acquire angelic characteristics. That reminds me of a story of a man who went up after a priest preached on the angels, and he went into the sacristy and said, Father, after hearing you speak, I'm convinced that my wife is an angel. And the priest said, why is that? He said, well, because she's always up in the air, harping on something. <laughs> so we just become angels life. But we always remain separate from the angels. So what fascinates us is we're familiar with bodies without souls, like a rock, right? And then we have bodies with a soul, a material soul, such as dog, such as Fido. But then we also have bodies with spiritual souls, such as us. You know, uh, the human person, mankind. But beyond that, there's a gap. There's, there's a part of our, our, our thinking that says, was there such thing as a mind without a body? Was there such thing with a mind without a body, a pure spirit? And this rock brings wonder to our minds. And unfortunately today, Catholics have lost the false sense of the supernatural. And this includes the world of the angels, because we have dropped many references to the angels in prayer, catechesis, and daily life. And when the church drops something, when Christians neglect something of the faith, many times the world picks it up. What are the ways in which the popular secular world has picked up the angels? We think about the New Age and geology. Uh, shows such as Touched by an Angel, Highway to Heaven. In a certain sense, superheroes, Superman, Spider-Man, and the characters in the movie such as The Matrix, these are kind of popular imaginations of angel-like people. So the loss of contact with the angels through liturgy, prayer, and study have serious consequences. 
So in this age of new age and popular concept of angels, it is important that we root our belief in divine revelation rather than popular fancy, which more often than not is erroneous. I hope today to help rebuild for you a greater appreciation of the angels through this short class. Now I'm shooting for about an hour. I will be touching upon certain aspects of them, and I hope this encourages to follow up of a study of your own. So we go back to the Bible, the Catechism, and for those of you who are up to it, the Summa Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelic Doctor. And of course, this leads to prayer. It's nurtured by prayer. It leads to prayer. And I'll speak about prayer to the angels at the very end. So my talk will be divided into three parts. Number one, uh, St. Ignatius Loyola always wanted his priests. I'm not a Jesuit, but I, I like the idea. Every talk be in three parts in honor of the Most Holy Trinity. And we'll also have the three hierarchies of the angels. Three is everywhere. Number one, a brief look at the biblical account of the creation of the angels and a study of their nature. Number two, a peek inside the structure of the angelic hierarchies and choirs and the sources, the biblical and patristic sources of this teaching. And three, finally, an account of the fall of the rebellious angels from heaven, which followed a particular test to which each angel was subjected. First, we go to the angels, their creation, and their nature. How do we know that angels exist? Simply speaking, through divine revelation, that is, sacred scripture and the holy tradition of the Catholic Church. We need this because, strictly speaking, one cannot prove the existence of angels through reason alone, natural reason alone. Although arguments for their fittingness can be made to show the reasonableness of their existence, and how the universe would be incomplete without them. So I spoke at the very beginning about rocks, plants, animals, then men, and then there's this gap between us and God. Of course, that gap's infinite. It'll never be finished. But we start to think, well, for this completion of this great chain of being, wouldn't it be fitting that there be some intellectual creatures that have no body? And these are natural arguments we can bring forth to show the fittingness, but we simply, as Aquinas will hold, cannot prove the existence of angels the way that, say, for example, Aquinas proves the existence of God. So the existence of the angels is the truth of the faith. Catholic Catechism number 328. Catechism number 328. And tradition has affirmed the existence of angels from the very beginning, starting with such fathers as St. Justin Martyr. <coughs> and has been dogmatically defined at the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215. And it's been just part and parcel of our uninterrupted teaching of the Catholic Church. Now when you look at sacred scriptures, where are we going to find an account of the creation of the angels? The very first passage of the sacred book. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens and the earth. It brings to mind the creed that we pray on Sunday, that the sun creates things, as we say, seen and unseen. A better translation is things visible and invisible. Because I can hide between, I can hide behind this uh, podium, I can be unseen, but that doesn't make me invisible by nature. So the, the better sense is visible and invisible. And so God creates the heavens and the earth. The church fathers contemplating this passage saw the heavens as representing the angels and the earth representing all material creation. So already at the very beginning, in the first day, God creates the heavens, the angels. The earth was a formless wasteland and darkness covered the abyss. 
while the mighty wind or the spirit swept over the waters then God said let there be light this is very interesting because on the fourth day here's what God does on the fourth day one would first think okay let there be light simply means the stars and the sun but on the fourth day God said let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate day from night let them mark the fixed times the days and the years to serve as luminaries in the dome of the sky to shed light upon the earth so the account goes on to speak about two great lights, one during the day, the sun, one during the night, the moon. Just as a side note, the children of Fatima would oftentimes speak about the moon as Our Lady's lamp, a very beautiful symbol of Our Lady, because this, the moon does not have light of its own, but it receives light from the sun. Just as like Mary is full of light, full of grace, but she receives it from the sun, not from herself. So the fathers meditated upon let there be light. Some said on the literal sense, but this refers to some primordial light, physical light. Maybe like we talk about the particle theory, wave particle theory. Don't know. But on the spiritual level, let there be light. St. Augustine in the seat of God speaks about this is the glorification of the good angels. Okay, so at the very first day, God created the heavens and the earth, that is the, the angels and just the unformed material creation. And then, let there be light. The test of the angels came at the very beginning. And those angels that were obedient to God received the beatific vision. And that was, let there be light. Let the angels become enlightened with my light. And then God separated the light from the darkness. Where did the darkness come from? Those were the evil angels who fell, who followed Satan, followed Lucifer out of heaven by saying, I will not serve. So this light that God gave to the good angels was a created light, the beatific vision, not the divine glory, because the divine glory, the light of divine glory, belongs to God's essence itself. As James 1.17, we read, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. We'll remember that because when we go through the structure of the parts of the angels, we're going to see, at least from Dionysius, but the whole scheme makes sense with regards to illumination. God illumines the seraphim, and the seraphim will bring light to the lower choirs, and then from the angels bring light to us. Because our guardian angel shines a light upon our conscience, upon our intellect, to help us to think and to know God's will. So in conclusion, with regards to the creation, angels exist. We believe that they exist through divine faith through revelation, sacred scripture, and the tradition of the church, as interpreted by the magisterium. And it's all over scripture, the angels are. Which brings me to my second point about the nature of the angels. What is an angel? Well, the word angel, Latin angelus, comes, is related to the Greek angelos, which in turn is based on the Hebrew, meaning one going, one that's sent forth or a messenger. So generally speaking, we understand the word angel literally to mean a messenger. That's why in scripture, uh, excuse me, in Christian art, we'll see angels with wings because they do the will of God quickly and speedily as a messenger. As we think about a carrier pigeon, for example, goes quickly to bring messages. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in the glossary in the very back, there's a very nice uh, dictionary there. Here's the definition that the Catechism gives of the angel, and I'll go through all of its parts. An angel is a spiritual, personal, and immortal creature with intelligence and free will, 
who glorifies God without ceasing, and who serves God as a messenger of a saving plan. So first of all, an angel is a spiritual creature. That is, it has an intellect and a will, but no body. I think about if an angel would have a theme song, perhaps those of you old enough remember the 1950s Cab Calloway hit, I Ain't Got No Body. theme song, because he has no body. <laughs> Even though, uh, like St. Raphael in the book of Tobit appears with a body, uh, that's not his own body. He, uh, St. Thomas says he borrow a body or create a body, much like we may rent a suit, something like that. Doesn't, doesn't belong to the angel. So the angel is spiritual, and it's also personal, with a personality. We have to remember that, because an angel is not an abstract being. It's a person with a real personality who, I don't want to say has feelings, in the sense we do, because feelings are tied with the body, but it has intellectual, will, love, and whatever, on an analogous sense, what angel-like feelings would be. Sometimes you'll read private revelation of the angels that appear, like to Padre Pio, and <laughs> Padre Pio once got mad at his guardian angel and chewed out his guardian angel, and he, he uh, described the angel as kind of like, uh, like a whimpering puppy. Saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to go like this. That's the way the angel appeared to him. So however that is in the angelic realm, there is something that is very touching for us. So it's spiritual, it's immortal, and the angel, yeah, it's spiritual, personal, and it is immortal. It has a beginning but no end. It will never die. So those are the three characteristics. Spiritual, personal, and immortal. And the definition includes two tasks. Number one, to glorify God, the first and primary purpose of the angel. And two, to be messengers of God in his saving plan. So an angel, spiritual, personal, mortal, and it glorifies God and is a messenger of God in his saving plan. St. Augustine says in his commentary on Psalm 103, An angel is the name of their office, not of their nature. If you seek the name of their nature, it is spirit. If you seek the name of their office, it is angel. From what they are, spirit. From what they do, angel. So spirit refers to what they are. Uh, angel refers to what they do, because angel means messenger. What can the angels not do? These are important. Number one, angels do not know the secrets of God unless they're revealed to the angel. 1 Corinthians 2.11. 1 Corinthians 2.11, where St. Paul speaks about God alone has secrets, unless he reveals them. So the angels do not have they get illumined by God himself, and the lower angels receive that from the higher angels. Number two, the angels do not know our secret thoughts. St. Thomas Aquinas is very clear on this. So if the, the good angels don't know our secret thoughts, the demons do not know our secret thoughts. Because sometimes people think, well, the angel knows exactly what's going on in my mind. No. We, if we reveal our thoughts to the good angels, they can help us. The angels can kind of guess what's going on. So sometimes your angel may, may help or God may give him a certain illumination. With regards to temptation, the demons do not know what's going on in your mind. They can guess by certain physical reactions. But the, the core of the soul is the sanctuary. Our sanctuary. And that's always respected by God. So the angels do not know our secret, secret thoughts. 1 Kings 8.39 1 Kings 8.39 a scriptural reference. And three, finally... Angels have no certain foreknowledge of the free actions of the future. Isaiah 46.9, Isaiah 46.9. They have no 
definite, uh, say, of their nature, knowledge of the future, unless, again, God lets them know. Angels belong to Christ. He is their center. Matthew 25, 31, we read, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, His, his angels, over and over, we read, Angels are sent to serve, according to Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to serve for the sake of those who have obtained salvation? And angels were created through and for him. As we see Colossians, the first quotation I wrote on the board, in him were created all things in heaven and on earth. Remember heaven and earth, the angels and creation, Visible and invisible, whether thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or powers. In the next section, I'll speak about these four thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, which show up also in the second list as names of the choirs of the angels. And this shows us the scriptural basis of the Catholic teaching on the choirs of the angels. And that brings us to really the center of today's talk, is on the angelic hierarchies and choirs, which fascinates, because we like to know about hierarchies, we like to know to see that inside how things work. There's a magazine called Inside the Vatican, people may subscribe to, hey, I want to look to see what's going on inside. What are the cardinals doing, what are the seniors, and perhaps what's the Pope's doing, even with regard to the White House, how's it structured, who works in the West Wing, how's it set out. So if that's true here, in this life, what about this mysterious world of the angels? What can we know about the way they are classified? The numbers of the angels, as, as said in sacred scripture, is immense. In Hebrews 12.22, the word myriads is used. Myriads, thousands and thousands. And then Daniel 7.10, Daniel 7.10 in Revelation 5.11, thousands and thousands is used. And then in Matthew 26.53, legions. So these terms, Hebrews 12, 22, myriads, Daniel 7, 10, and Revelation 5, 11, thousands and thousands, and then Matthew 26, 53, legions, bring to our mind, to our imagination, many, many angels. So if we have many angels, how are they grouped? Uh, what is their classifications? We know St. Paul distinguishes in two different lists. We have here uh, Colossians 1.16. In him were created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Then in Ephesians, that's, that's 1.21. These are the beginning hymns in these uh, beautiful letters. Christ, far above every principality, virtue, dominion, power, and dominion. Now, just a note on the translation. Sometimes your Bible will have different words because in the Greek, some of these are synonymous. So it depends on the English translation. Sometimes virtue is listed as power or principality as power. But I'm following the, I think it's the Vulgate uh, translation, uh, the English based on the Vulgate here. When St. Paul spoke about these, he was drawing upon even an earlier tradition that's perhaps in the Jewish culture. The Jewish have, Jews at the time had a very developed uh, angelology. Now some of it got a little off track and they covered the Kabbalah, uh, some of the, the angelology there, but it was still part of their thinking, of their, of their worldview based on uh, divine revelation. Because in addition to these, which I'll go through, there's also angels and archangels. There's the seraphim and the cherubim, which show up in the Old Testament. 
So in the early church, St. Clement and St. Ignatius of Antioch, for example, spoke of the orders of the angels, these church fathers living at the end of the first century, so that the time of St. Ambrose in the fourth century, the present number of the nine choirs of angels became established in Christian piety. So the first three or four hundred years, there was already a well-developed teaching on the angelic hierarchies and choirs. So my thesis is that Catholic theological and liturgical tradition teaches that there are three hierarchies and nine choirs. And this is the common doctrine of the church that is expressed very clearly by St. Thomas Aquinas. <coughs> Aquinas draws upon two fathers for his teaching. And I'll be basically following Aquinas in this presentation. First, uh, St. Gregory the Great. St. Gregory the Great. I've got Gregory listed here in blue to show that he follows this list, this ordering, as we ascend the angelic hierarchies. The other is Dionysius Areopagite, and he uses Ephesians 1.21. Gregory, no, he's one of the great fathers of the church, but who's Dionysius? This is kind of interesting, uh, because there's been a lot of controversy about him. I'll call him Dennis, because Dennis is like the English word. It's easier to say. Remember, again, um, the Acts of the Apostles were... St. Paul went to Athens and he preached on the Areopagus, or the, where the there. And he, he was like a bishop sheen that day. I mean, it's just a moving uh, talk about the Christian revelation. But he had very few converts, and he felt that like it was a failure. And he actually went back later in the first Corinthians and spoke about the necessity of speaking about the cross of Jesus Christ. He never mentioned the cross of our Lord in that talk. That may have been one reason why he didn't gain converts. But it did say one convert of his was Dionysius from that area. Uh, so he was called Dionysus the Areopagite. When this uh, treatise showed up in the first, uh, say about 5th or 6th century, it was called On the Celestial Hierarchies, it was attributed to this Dionysus, Dionysus the Areopagite. And Gregory knew of this work by Dionysius called, the, again, the Angelic or Celestial Hierarchies. And so the, for the first, well, really 1,700 years of the church, this was accepted to be a document that came from Dionysius, who probably learned it was thought this doctrine from Paul himself. And so it had a quasi-scriptural authority to it. Now, when, we say, when I say scholars say, we take that somewhat with a grain of salt, uh, because I haven't seen the arguments itself, but the scholarly consensus today is that this was not written by Dionysius, the, 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 the disciple St. Paul, this Dionysius, the disciple St. Paul, who was by tradition the first bishop of Paris, France, that it was not actually written by him, but it's actually written by a Syrian monk in the 5th or 6th century. So one will say, okay, so they call him Pseudo-Dionysius. How would you like to be called, you know, Hi, my name is Faith Dennis. It sounds like a used car salesman. Hi, Faith Dennis. But, um, so we saw, he's called basically Pseudo-Dionysius, the Areopagite. I just call him Dennis, uh, the menace. But the thing is, okay, granted that that wasn't written in the first century, nevertheless, before Dionysius showed up, there was already the well-established Catholic teaching from these fathers that I quoted on the nine choirs of the angels. But the fact is that God used this work to help 
uh, Illumin, because he was a father, and helped expand uh, the, the doctrine of the church on the nine choirs. So that's, that's a historical truth, I mean an historical anomaly, but it really doesn't destroy the doctrine of the church on the choirs because there's a lot more that's said out there. So I'm going to be basically following in my presentation Gregory and St. Thomas with a little of Dionysus and other fathers. What Gregory does is he starts with the lowest angels and goes up to the highest. And the reason he does that is he wants to uh, show how we ascend to God through the different choirs of the angels. And when I get done going through the nine choirs, There'll be a very interesting quotation I'll read from St. Gregory where he speaks about when we grow in holiness, we're going to be brought up through the different choirs of the angels. Imagine, as we go through the different uh, choirs, we, is, we uh, acquire certain other attributes. And then there's this beautiful mystical tradition about the three ways of the spiritual life, the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the transformative way. Some of the spiritual rites of the church have uh, linked that up to the choirs of the angels, that as we grow in holiness and prayer, we're actually moving, ascending through the different choirs of the angels, such that when we do retain fullness of holiness, we become burning like the seraphim, right close to the triune God. And that's a beautiful, beautiful reflection to have. So let us start right now with St. Gregory's homily. It's homily 34. Homily 34 is found in his 40 homilies on the Gospels. And this is very interesting about how he broke into the topic of the nine choirs. We're familiar with the following parable. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one silver coin, does not light a lamp, overturn the house, and seek diligently, uh, diligently until she finds the coin? It's the parable of a lost coin. Notice that there are ten. St. Gregory says that's for a purpose. Ten is the perfect number. Nine plus one. Nine choirs of the angels plus one. Us. Yes. Humanity. Mankind. And so what happens is... With the fall, with the original sin, that one coin, which has the image of the king on it, we're created in the image and likeness of God, falls. The nine choirs stay, because even though angels, some of the angels fell into hell, the nine choirs remain stable. The good angels remain stable. So the nine choirs remain. But uh, because of original sin, from the very beginning, our first parents, all of humanity was infected. So the woman who represents divine wisdom, she's a feminine character, the divine wisdom, goes in search for the lost coin. And so she lights a lamp, a lamp, something uh, that's fragile, that's the human uh, body, the human nature that Christ took on with the light inside, the divinity. So St. Gregory is going through this uh, parable to show a little incarnation, the story of the incarnation. But he says... When she gets to the point of saying, Rejoice with me, I found the coin which I had lost. This is the fruits of the redemption. <coughs> and from that, he then begins his uh, teaching on the nine choirs, starting with the lowest. The lowest choir are the angels. It takes the name from the general classification, the angels, angelus. These are most like us, because as we go up through the choirs, what St. Thomas teaches, Dionysus also, is that as the angels get closer to God, they become more simple and more powerful, and they'll have less thoughts. 
You see, when we understand something very well, we can get it all under one idea. When we're just learning something, we have all these different thoughts. We were kind of scattered. The lower angels have many thoughts, uh, like we do, but as they become, uh, as you go up the, the, the ladder, they become more simple, such as the seraphim, the highest angels, have very few thoughts because they see things through wisdom, and in wisdom it contains all things in a simplicity that approaches that of God. So that's consoling that the guardian angels come from the, the first choir down here, because they're most like us. So when we were born, according to some teaching when we were baptized, but I think the more firm tra tradition is that not just Christians, but all people, even non-Christians, are given a guardian angel at birth, and the guardian angel will be with them until death. So their goal is to get every man, woman, and child to heaven. If the person goes to hell, well, they'll have to leave them at the gates of hell. And perhaps they'll be reassigned. We don't know if our guardian angel will ever be reassigned to someone else or if he had a, another task. But if every person in the world has a guardian angel, that means there are billions of angels in this lowest fire. So the first one we're going to give, as St. Gregory does, simply the name angels. And the word angel shows up hundreds of times in the New Testament, uh, Old and New Testament. I'll just give you a few. Romans 8.39. Romans 8.38 Romans 8.38 and 1 Peter 3.22 Romans 8.38 and 1 Peter 3.22 they deliver our prayers to God and they bring God's blessing and messages to us we know that uh, that when Christ called uh, Nathaniel, Nathaniel was, was surprised because the Lord knew something about him. Our Lord said, I saw heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. These are would be at least the good angels who are helping us. So those are where our guardians belong to. And I hope we pray to our guardian angels every day. Our guardian angels are there when we sleep. There's a beautiful tradition, you can do it before you go to bed, ask your guardian angel to pray for you at the tabernacle here at St. John's. In fact, you can ask your guardian angel to go to all the masses offered in the world in your name. Because your angel has no body, and your angel can go from here to Beijing and back in a split second. And so, use your angels well. There's a lot of uh, untapped potential in our spiritual life. Uh, St. Padre Pio, uh, Blessed John the 23rd, Pius the 12th, they had a beautiful custom of sending their guardian angel to the person with whom they're going to speak. So if you've got an important uh, conversation, if you have a job interview, if you have to speak to your spouse, if you have to have something uh, said, it's a good custom following the example of these saints. Ask your guardian angel to speak to the guardian angel of the other person. And I tell you, it really works. Conversation is so much more facilitated. Because the angels, in the, according to the illumination, they shine upon our minds and help communications. Because as the angels communicate between each other, they can help us communicate with each other via themselves. Next choir is, what would you think the next choir is? And we start with the angels. Archangels. Archangels, yes. So we have the archangels. St. Gregory says that as less important message 
messages are given to the angels, the more important messages are given to the archangels. Well, we know the most important message was given to Gabriel when he appeared to the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Gospel according to St. Luke. We have several references to the archangels. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 First Thessalonians 4.15, the archangel at the last judgment with the trumpet. And then there's Jude 1.9, Jude 1.9, the story of Michael battling Satan over the body of Moses. How many archangels are there? We don't know, but there's a hint given in Tobit. Tobit 12.15 Tobit 12.15 We read, I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who enter and serve before the glory of the Lord. There is one, this is not, has never been defined by the church, but there's a very strong tradition in the Catholic Church that are, there are seven archangels. In fact, down in Mexico, outside of Mexico City, there's a shrine in honor of St. Michael. And on the dome, you'll see seven archangels with the three plus four other names that show up in other parts of our Catholic tradition. One of them is Ariel, who appears in uh, Isaiah, meaning the Lion of God. But we only know the name of three angels. Not just three archangels, but of all the nine bars, only three have been revealed in sacred scripture. Uh, which is important because sometimes you'll find uh, private revelation that gives names of the angels and we should not use those for prayer. Now, there's nothing to prevent you from giving a name to your guardian angel. In fact, many people do that. Name your angel, use that, pray. But that's on the, the level of, of private devotion. The three that we know of is... Uh, I'll have to write these in the race. Michael. Whenever we see a word end in E-L, that means God. Israel, Michael, Raphael. Michael means who is like God. Because as we know in Revelation chapter 12, Michael defended God's glory and drove the devil, Satan, and the angels out of heaven. So Michael belonged to the second from the lowest, but what he did is he took up the sword and through God's grace went to the very top because Lucifer in our common tradition is understood to be the highest of all angels. He was a seraphim. And so like David and Goliath, uh, Michael would be like David. He took up the sword with God's grace, overthrew the great Goliath. So Michael receives that name for what he did. Who is like God? How dare, how dare you oppose God's plan? So Michael shows up in Daniel 10.13, for example. He's the prince of Israel, perhaps meaning the guardian angel of Israel. The princely seraph and the greatest of all the angels, not by nature, but by grace. Because the greatest angels by nature would be the highest choir, but the greatest angel by grace is Mikael, Michael, who is like God. When you hear at St. John's, you pray the St. Michael prayer at the end of Mass. Very powerful. If you're ever undergoing tremendous temptation, strife in the family, if you come home and you just kind of feel tension in the house, pray the St. Michael prayer. He comes with a sword and he helps you cut that away. Gabriel. <coughs> this means the strength of God. 
Gabriel appears in Daniel 8.16. Daniel 8.16 in the Old Testament. Gabriel, Daniel 8.16. But he's most famous, of course, for his appearances in the Gospel of Luke. Giving the message to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist. And even more significantly, uh, the great message that the angelic salutation to the Blessed Virgin Mary at the moment of the Incarnation. So that is Gabriel. Gabriel. And then finally, Raphael, which means healing or health of God. Help with healing of God. Healing of God. He only shows up in Tobit. And if you haven't read Tobit yet, I encourage you to. It's the most beautiful story. It's a wonderful love story, a beautiful story of an adventure, of, of finding things that are lost. And that is Raphael. Raphael is a patron, amongst other things, of doctors and of healing. If you have struggles with health issues, have a great devotion to St. Raphael. Those are the three archangels. The others, they exist, but we don't know their names. Those are the three to whom we can invoke in the sacred uh, liturgy. Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. What we do now is we look into going up into the, the other choirs, following the list of Ephesians 1.21. Far above every principality. But that, is, that brings us to the principalities, which I will call the princes. The princes round out the first hierarchy. If you notice I said at the beginning there are three hierarchies and nine choirs. The bottom three belong to the first hierarchy, the first general classification. The bottom hierarchy, their role is to help us. They are intimately involved in the drama of salvation. So they, their mission is, is very humbling, but their mission is for us, to get us to heaven. The princes are the greatest of this. They're, um, of course, show up in Ephesians, uh, their role is guardians of nations, of cities, of communities. Of the guardians of nations and communities. Blessed Peter Faber, who's a Jesuit, had a beautiful custom. Whenever he went to a city, a town, upon entering that town, he would invoke the guardian angel of that community. So we remember that too. When we go into the district, when we come to McLean, we realize that these communities have been assigned an angel from the principalities. And that's important, particularly with the elections coming up in 2008. Our country has a guardian angel. If we go up to the Blue Army Shrine in Washington, New Jersey, you'll find the Guardian Angel Statue of the United States. Let us pray to the Guardian Angel of the United States, particularly during this election year. We also know through the revelations of Fatima, the angel appeared three times in 1916 to the three children. And the third and final one, he said, I am the Guardian Angel of Portugal. We also know in Daniel, I had already quoted uh, passages from Daniel refer to Michael showing up. Michael refers to himself as the prince of Israel, the carnage of Israel. So it may have been that although he's an archangel, he was given a special honor of being the guardian angel of Israel. So those are the princes. They look out over the common community. As the guardian angels look over individuals, the princes look over the common community. Well, do they correspond to principality and your quotation is yes. up there? Yes. So yeah, for short, I'm putting princes. Yeah. 
it comes from the Greek meaning arche, uh, arche, which means beginning or the principle of order. So this is really the, the principle of order of the angels below. We next have the second hierarchy, the next three. These next three choirs of the angels, their mission is to maintain the laws of the universe. So it's more have to do with the physical, but not simply physical, but there's an emphasis on that. The, the next is, following the, the list in Ephesians, is the virtues. <coughs> virtues comes from the Latin virtus, which means strength. The Greek is dynamis, where we get the word dynamism, power. Again, this comes from the virtue, uh, the, the list of Ephesians. They are the spirits that control the elements. To govern all nature, the seasons, the stars, the sun, and the moon. So as we look around us, we see all the stars, we see how uh, the planets uh, rotate in a beautiful order. The angels are involved in this maintenance of the universe. Angels cannot be, cannot be directly measurable, but it's like our soul. We know our soul exists even though if we go to a doctor or laboratory, no one's going to come out with empirical evidence on a slide or something under a microscope Oh, there's the soul, but its effects are seen. The same way the angels maintain the laws of the universe. So that would represent the physical order of creation. After the virtues, we have the powers. The next one on the list. The powers. Potestas in Latin, or exousia in Greek. These have a particular role in combating evil. Because we know that before, say, as a result of original sin, uh, the universe fell, the nature fell. Uh, Milton has a beautiful line, man fell in nature wet. So in the, in the Garden of Eden, I imagine there weren't any weeds, there wouldn't be any tornadoes, there wouldn't be any uh, famine or pestilence. These were the result of original sin. And there's a lot of, again, our customs that we've lost in Catholic tradition. But I have certain prayers for good weather. When I was in the monastery in Portugal, if we ever had a bad storm coming, because we lived on the side of a mountain, and we had a vineyard, we used to make our own wine, we'd go to the church to pray, and then somebody would ring the blessed bells, because bells in the old rite would be blessed, and there'd even be an exorcism. And when you bring, bring the bells, that had an exorcistic power over the weather. When I was in Idaho, my home state, I was out at a family's farm, and they lived on the, the edge of a canyon. And the farm was always concerned, particularly during the fall, with the crops. And we saw to the south this really bad-looking black storm approaching from the south. I, I said, okay, we need to pray. So I... I, I prayed and the holy name, made it the sign of the cross, and we all witnessed how the storm shortly after stopped and moved to the west. So prayers have an effect upon weather against the demons, because the demons are, are behind trying to destroy the world. God sends the powers to help combat that, and when something bad does happen, we don't understand, but God has allowed that for a greater good. So these are warrior angels, against evil. 
help but evil of uh, evil of nature. The third and final choir of the second hierarchy are the dominions. Sometimes called the dominations. And they also show up in, of course, the Colossian. These are angels of, of leadership. They receive Basically, they go, they're going to receive from this higher choir the commands of God uh, to, to give to these lower two choirs. So they, they are the authorities over these two, just like the princes are authority over these as well. So they are leadership with regards to the commands of God for the work of the second hierarchy. The word dominion means lordship or sovereignty. Leadership and, let's say, regulate duties. So virtues, powers, and dominions. And finally, the third hierarchy. Their role is pure adoration of God. Now I'm doing this in a, the uh, vertical sense, but there's also a way of illustrating this through concentric circles. Remember, you could think about God being in the center, and then as you go out further from God, you get further down the, the ladder. There's different ways of illustrating this, but this is good insofar as we give a have a sense of ascending to God. The first of the third hierarchy is the thrones. The thrones show up over here in Colossians. Throne means seat of majesty. There are angels of peace, angels of submission, angels of pure humility. And they are, I want to say, revealers. Revealers of, of mysteries of God. Because they are like the door through which one enters into the inner sanctum. Because here we have the three choirs that are totally focused on the adoration of God. The thrones are the foundation, the very word throne. The king sits down on a throne. The same way this foundation of, of uh, as it were, of God's majesty is... I think, fittingly uh, given the name throne, kind of as a place where God resides. From the thrones, we enter into the two highest, and these are perhaps the two most familiar in many ways. They are going to symbolize uh, or represent the two faculties of our soul. The first being the cherubim, and the, the highest being the seraphim. The cherubim reflect divine wisdom. The seraphim reflect divine love. So the wisdom being the perfection of the intellect, love being the perfection of the will, the two faculties of, of man, the two faculties of the angel. Scriptural references starting with the cherubim. We have Genesis 3.24, when our parents were uh, asked to leave the garden, the garden uh, God stationed a cherubim with a flaming sword. 
We have Exodus 25:22, for example, where we have uh, the cherubim uh, in the temple, the cherubim who are uh, on the mercy seat of uh, the covenant of God. They show up in the art all over the Old Testament. And then in Ezekiel 10, chapter 10, we have the cherubim who appeared to the prophet as those wheels, those spinning wheels of fire, the living creatures, which show up in Revelation 4 again. They reflect the wisdom and understanding of Almighty God. Whereas the seraphim reflect the love of God. First of all, before I go to the seraphim, here's what St. Gregory says about the cherubim. This means fullness of knowledge. These most sublime bands of spirits are rightly called cherubim because they are so full of the most perfect knowledge that they contemplate the glory of God from the vantage point of immediate proximity. According to the way of created beings, the cherubim know all things fully as they draw near, through the merit of their unworthiness to the vision of their creator. The seraphim means literally the burning ones. They're the highest order. They praise God continuously, as we said, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord. That was the seraphim that taught Isaiah that prayer that we pray at every Holy Mass, Isaiah chapter 6. St. Gregory says this about the seraphim. Those bands of Holy Spirits are called seraphim who, because of a singular attraction to their Creator, burn with an incom 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 incomparable love. Thus seraphim are called burning or incandes incandescent. This... Incandescent. Wow. I'm 43 and I'm still learning. <laughs> Seraphim are called burning. Did I say that? Uh, since they have been so united God that no other spirit may intervene between them and God, burn all the more fiercely as they see God more intimately. So the seraphim is really the reflection of the being burned up with the love of the triune God. And basically that's the goal of all life, is the perfection in charity which is a, this most sublime vocation in our life. So what St. Gregory does is bring us to these different choirs up to the seraphim. And what he says at the very end of the homily is this. While I'm speaking of these things, dear friends, lead yourself home into your innermost self, that is, to the core of your being. Examine the merits of your inner secrets and inmost understanding. Look inside yourself and see what you're doing now. See if it is good. See if you are among the number of those angels whom we have briefly touched upon. See if you find your vocation among them. So we contemplate the different uh, rankings of the angels and pray, perhaps in different needs and necessities, invoking these angels who are there to help us in our need. But we also want to link that to our spiritual life. So this is not only about learning about the angels, but learning about love and holiness through the angels. There'll be, after a short break, there'll be, those of you who want to stay around, there'll be certainly time for questions and answers. But in the last 10 minutes of this class, I want to speak about the angelic test in the fall of Satan and the demons. Because something happened that was very wrong, it was a primordial sin. God created all angels as good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then something happened. He said, let there be light. He separated the light from the darkness. Some great tragedy occurred. We read in chapter 12 of Revelation. Another sign appeared in the sky. It was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on its heads were seven diadems. 
Its tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels battled against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they did not prevail, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The huge dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and its angels were thrown down with it. The dragon swept away a third of the stars in the sky. In the book of Revelation, the star, in many contexts, is a symbol of the angels. Many fathers and theologians commenting on this interpret this meaning that one-third of all the angels that were created fell into hell with Satan. So that was a huge number. Because Lucifer, the highest of the seraphim, had an immense control and influence upon the lower angels. And this battle that occurred at the moment of creation was a battle of intellect and will. It wasn't one of swords. That's the way St. John in Revelation uh, symbolizes it. But it was one of... Of, of illumination, because Lucifer, meaning the light bearer, received the light from God, and his uh, role was to give light to the lower angels. <coughs> well, when he started through his sin of crime to deviate from God's plan, he no doubt influenced many, many angels below him. And that was, we don't know exactly why that happened, but we do have indications. St. Thomas Aquinas states that the, the core of the trial of Satan was this that Satan desired supernatural knowledge of God, but this supernatural knowledge of God, this greater, more intimate knowledge of God, could only be given by grace. But Satan wanted this knowledge through his own power. He was not humble enough to accept grace to understand God, that is, to be brought into the beatific vision. And that's why in Jeremiah 2.20, a passage is applied to Satan. I will not serve, non-Serbian. Jeremiah 2.20. And then in Isaiah 14.12, Isaiah 14.12, words that historically applied to the king of Babylon, but have been seen in a spiritual interpretation applied to Lucifer, we read, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, who did rise in the morning. And so this, this test that took place at the very creation really ripped apart the fabric of God's plan. So the devil basically thought that he had won. Because the other interpretation that comes from <clears throat> centuries back is this, that at the moment of their creation, Lucifer and all the angels were shown that the Son of God would become incarnate. And this created envy in him because he had thought, if the second person of Trinity becomes, takes on a lower form, why doesn't he become an angel? Why does he become one of these human beings? That's too much because he also realized that if God became incarnate, he and the other angels would have to serve and would have to adore God in this very lowly form. It was too much for him. Why could not God become an angel? Do I have to serve and adore God in this lowly form? And the clincher was this, that there would be a woman called Mary, the Blessed Virgin, who would be the queen of the angels. And the angels would be accountable to her because she would be their queen. Imagine. So he has a particular hatred for women. And we see in the Garden of Eden where he went after the woman. It may have been that Satan thought that Eve was the woman who was to be the mother of the Messiah. He had no idea. He didn't know for sure. But he thought he would take his chance. And when he got Eve to convince her husband and he saw both Adam and Eve fall, he probably thought, I have won. Not only did I win the battle in heaven where I took many of the angels with me, 
Now I've destroyed God's plan by getting to the woman and through her the man. And he's followed that pattern ever since. He goes after the woman in many cases and through the woman gets the man. He has a particular hatred of women and of the Blessed Virgin. And we see that today in the way of uh, the, the awfulness of pornography, of radical feminization, and of abortion. He's actually always going after the woman because he knows once he gets the woman, he can more easily get the man. But as we know through God's wisdom, he brings uh, greater good out of evil, that God was actually able to win the whole battle. Because even though these uh, choirs uh, fell, there's a beautiful thing. And this is a teaching of Aquinas in Augustine. Let me read this. We know that uh, in the Gospel according to St. Luke, our Lord says, uh, in heaven, men will neither be married or given in marriage, but they'll be like or equal to the angels. In our Catholic tradition, starting at least with St. Augustine, there's a teaching that we, the saints, will fill the gaps that were vacated by the fallen angels. That the saints are going to occupy those holes, as it were, in the heavenly hierarchies. So angels together, we together with the angels, will praise God in the one mystical body of Christ. This is a most extraordinary teaching, considering that the distinction of angelic orders and choirs falls upon the natures of the angels. So through grace, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, we merit glory to such a degree to be equal to the angels in each of the angelic grades. So really, depending upon, according to the teaching of Aquinas, the degree of beatitude we have, which is proportionate to the degree of holiness we get in this life, will deter determine which of the choirs that we are brought up into into heaven. So it's not in heaven, it won't be as though there'll be men and angels like this, but we'll be together with them, we'll be like the angels, to praise God for all eternity. So right now is the time to get to know the angels well, because God willing, saving our souls, will be brought up into this heavenly vision together with the angels. Finally, a summary. Pope John Paul II, speaking of the angels, in his Wednesday audiences of July and August 1986, this was on August 6th, says these words. Sacred scripture refers to the angels also by using terms that are not only personal, like the proper names of Raphael, Gabriel, and Michael, but also collective, like the titles seraphim, cherubim, thrones, powers, dominions, principalities, just as it distinguishes between angels and archangels. While bearing in mind analogous and representative character of the language of the sacred text, we can deduce that these beings and persons, as it were grouped together in society, are divided into orders and grades, corresponding to the measure of their perfection and to the tasks entrusted to them. The ancient authors and the liturgy itself speak also the angelic choirs, nine according to Dionysius the Areopagite, so John Paul II gives props to Dionysius. Uh, theology, especially in the patristic and medieval periods, has not rejected these representations, seeking to explain them in doctrinal and mystical terms without, however, attributing an absolute value to them. The Holy Father is saying that this is part of our Catholic tradition. Even though it has not been declared as a dogma, most of the truths that we have in our faith are not declared as dogmas because they're part of, our, of the uninterrupted teaching of the Church. 
The angelic hierarchies are part of the church, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, and have Christological characters. Since the saints will be taken up in angelic choirs to become like, to become equal to the angels, it is now time to start speaking to the angels to pray with them, especially to our guardian angel. We want to pray, speak constantly to our angel, and our angel cannot speak to us unless we have silence. So in this time of a lot of noise, we have to have a certain asceticism of electronics. Because I know many of us need things like well, phones, and there's always seems to be something going on on the phone, or there's, there's the radio, we go into gas stations now, they're blaring music, and they go into the, the supermarket, they're playing like the Bee Gees, and, and it took me years to forget that kind of music, I go in and buy some. All these memories come back. So we're being bombarded constantly by, by noise, and so we need to parcel sometime throughout the day to come to a little out-of-the-way place and rest a while. Our Lord says in Exodus 23, See, I am sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Be attentive to him and heed his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not forgive your sin. My authority resides in him. The good Lord God has given to us angels, guardian angels, angels of our country, angels to protect us in nature, angels to bring us into heaven to praise him for all eternity. Our Lady Queen of Angels, in the name of the Father and the Son of the I think what we'll do is I know some of you have to go, so why don't we take a 60-second break? Those that need to leave can exit, and those that want to stay for a short question and answer session are more than welcome to do so. Stand up and stretch your legs.
question and answer. Uh, only one question per person. Make sure there's a question mark at the end of your sentence and make sure you only have one sentence. <laughs> so, um, but uh, again, only one question per person and maximum to five to ten minutes and then we'll cut it off and Father will be available later for one-on-one for -on -one questions. Perfect. Father, could you... Um uh, since you're talking about the holy angels, could you just say um, a brief word about um, the Opus Angelorum and the Order of the Holy Cross and their status in the church today? Oh, certainly. I wrote up here several references uh, on the angels. The first is opusangelorum.org. Opus, the Latin word for work, like Opus Dei. Opus Angelorum, genitive plural, work of the angels. Dot org. There you'll find an amazing treasure of essays, prayers on the angels. This was a spirituality that was approved uh, by the Catholic Church in 1993. My background with, it, with that was, you saw in the flyer, it said that I was in a monastery for six years, three years in Brazil, three years in Portugal. Well, that was this community. It was the cans rig of the Holy Cross to whom was entrusted spreading devotion to the angels according to the work of the holy angels. What happened was Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, back in the early 1990s, set out a decree which basically regulated some of the teachings, because some of the teachings of the work of the Holy Angels was based on private revelation. And uh, the church found nothing that was erroneous, but she thought it was best to base the angelology on scripture and tradition. Some of the revelations were have been approved for public use. The problem was these revelations dealt with angel names. I said during my talk that we only know three names of angels. This woman, her name was Gabriella Bitterlich. She was an Austrian mother of three children, a wife. Uh, she, when she put her children to bed at night, and her husband went, she'd get these interior locutions. And on her knees, she would write what she received, and she ended up with like 60,000 pages, hundreds of angel names. And the community was using these names that were given in Hebrew uh, for prayer. You know, the, the seraphim, the cherubim. But Karna Ratzinger stepped in and said, no, we can't do that. The only names we can use in liturgy and in prayer are the three names that we have through sacred scripture. So once that problem was, was resolved, the church gave the Opus Angelorum uh, full recognition. And now they're doing fantastic work. The priests go around giving missions and retreats on the angels. And I know they've been in this area because uh, they did something up in Maryland, and they're based out of Detroit, that Assumption Grotto Parish. Is that? Yeah, thank you. Father, could you um, say more explicitly what it would mean to reveal your thought to an angel? So if you're having some sort of interior monologue, um, can the angel know what that is, or do you have to explicitly address one? That's a very good question, and I'm not too sure about the particulars, but that's one of the good reasons for making one's consecration, one's guardian angel, which is entrusted to the Opus Angelorum. If you get on their website, you can get the prayer, or you can make one on your own. But basically what you say is the guardian angel, I share with you my thoughts for the salvation, the salvation of my soul and the sanctification. So you're able to have a closer uh, union with the angel, and you're allowing the angel to have a closer intimacy with you. So you're not 
You can make a general. You can make a general. Uh, general act of the will to the angel because everything the angel does is in the beatific vision and is through God's holy permission. And it may be when we're um, not thinking about the angel that God does allow the angel to know what's going on in your mind. But I think the more we can open ourselves to an explicit act of the will to the workings of the good angel, they will certainly have uh, great, great influence on us. I'm sure we all have stories about how angels saved our lives. They also have saved us from a lot of sin, from occasions of sin. I stand here before you today because my life was saved by inches when I was a college student, sophomore year. I was driving to southern Idaho in the country roads. I had the windows rolled up as during summertime and I was blaring music. I have to say, it was Gregorian chant, but I was still blaring it. And uh, honestly, it was just like slim, I was just cranking it. And, uh, so I had his, and um, you got those train tracks that cross, you know, sometimes you got the ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Well, sometimes in Southern Idaho, you don't have the, the bar, but you got just the lights. And I was just really into the music, you know. And uh, this feeling, sometimes your angel just speaks to you, not through an idea, but just an urgency. And someone told me, I don't know, I just got to get on the brakes. So I just obeyed got on the brakes, and as soon as the car stopped, the train went, was just right in front of me. And that was something that was very ex extreme, but I know my angel's been with me, as you can think of other cases in your life. Our vocation director, at, at, uh, or former vocation director at Denver, was uh, flying down the interstate on his motorcycle. This is before he was a seminarian. He wasn't looking where he was going. The car in front of him stopped in the middle of the highway. He was going about 70 miles an hour. So Jeff hit the rear end of the car, uh, flew off the motorcycle, did a complete flip in the air, and landed on his feet like a gymnast. <laughs> and he, he certainly woke up and then and, um, is now a priest. <laughs> he got perfect tense, except the Soviets gave him a second. <laughs> The, the angel, when he was created, he was created in that hierarchy, and they're not able to exactly better or improve or or whatever. Yeah, that's a very good question. These are are Saint Thomas Aquinas says that every angel is its own species. So one angel differs from another. Let's just take take the guardian angels. One angel differs from another angel as a cat differs from a dog. Because with, with men, we differ from each other according to our body. It's the principle of individuation. Some of us are tall, some of us are short, some of us are white skin, some of us are dark skin. Some of you have this very unnecessary and bothersome substance called hair. <laughs> so we have, a, we have certain physical characteristics that distinguish us within the same species. But the angels, since they don't have a body, they don't have matter, they're distinguished according to what they call species. So there's a, a gradation according to kind. So these angels are classified according to their function. There may be some general characteristics, but at their creation, they were given this nature, and at the moment of their trial, that's when they receive glory. So they may have given, been given a greater or lesser degree of grace according to their, their love of God at the moment of their trial. 
See, angels cannot repent. They had one opportunity at their creation to say yes to God or say no to God. Those who said no immediately fell into hell. The mystery is that Satan and the fallen angels knew exactly what they were choosing and what they were getting into. They knew that they would be in hell for all eternity. They knew all about the sufferings. Quite different from us because sometimes our passions blind us to our future. We're not too sure. And that's the mystery of the angelic sin. They knew exactly what they're getting into. But sometimes our ignorance uh, at least mitigates the responsibility. So the angels only had one chance. So when we go to confession, I want you to ask your guardian angel to go closer to you in confession because an angels never experience mercy. An angels only experience justice. At the moment of their trial, they said yes or no. They never had a second chance. So your guardian angel sees you sin, he sees you going to confession and receiving forgiveness. He's never experienced this. He doesn't know what mercy is. The only way he experienced mercy is through you, through each, each one of us. And so this is what St. Peter says in his first letter, that there's certain mysteries that the angels long to look into. The angels long to peer into these mysteries. In the Greek text of that, that phrase, it refers to like spectators in a stadium who are on their toes, their tiptoes, looking down at the spectacle before them. St. Peter's saying, this is the way the angels are with regards to the mysteries of the incarnation. And we bring the angel to a greater realization of that mystery through the mercy of confession. So it's a beautiful role you can have to help your angel understand experientially to be in your garden with regards to what it means to receive mercy and to be forgiven. What passage in first Peter was that? Uh, you'll have to find that out. Okay, sorry. Now we have uh, angels that are guardian angels. Do we also have negative uh, spiritual beings that are assigned to us? Very good question. Guardian. Not guardian demons, but uh, <laughs> well, there's some. There's there's a theologian called Alan of Lil. He's got, and if I had time, I'd go over the the nine uh, diabolical choirs of angels. He calls them the anti-seraphim, anti-cherubim, and he has assigned uh, the the vices, the sins that these demons are. Part of it. Now that's very solid, we know in our Catholic tradition, particularly through exorcism. The priest learns that certain demons have guardian, guardianship, as it were, of certain sins. So there's demons that promote pornography, demons that promote anger, demons that promote violence and bloodshed. And they belong to one of these choirs, and it's probably a negative of this. But with regards to their, their unity and getting us to hell, it's interesting that the demons hate each other and they hate God. Insofar as they hate each other, there's no interior unity that the good angels have. So the unity that they do have is what we call an accidental unity. It's insofar as they hate God and us, they'll work together when they're not fighting with each other. So, in a, for example, in exorcism, sometimes a possessed person will have several demons. And when the priest does an exorcism, the lower demons leave first, and usually it's the most powerful demons that's the last to leave. But they themselves hate each other, and they're, they're fighting against each other. Uh, so there may be some kind of plan, but it's nothing, it's something that's very chaotic, and it's nothing that's very um, structured. But, but Satan, Lucifer, has the master plan, and he's able to, to, however he does in a diabolical manner, work things our hill. So we always want to be the first, have the first stop at the day because the fallen angel is very crafty. We cannot beat him. 
uh, on our own powers alone, we're always going to lose. That's why we need to be humble. We need to stay close to the sacraments, to prayer, to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the humble will overthrow the demon every time. As St. Paul says, God will never test us beyond our strength. There's always a way out of temptation. We never have to sin. But if we don't pray, as St. Alphonsus of Borges says, we're damned. If we do pray, we'll be saved. That's how simple it is. And to pray does not mean simply three Hail Marys in the morning, three Hail Marys at night. We need to go deep. We need to be very personal in our prayer and to bring the angel into that. Well, we call heroes saints. Why do we call the archangels saints? Yes, that's, that's a good question because sometimes we'll say all the angels are saints. I don't call them a dark angel saint. Yes. Well, saint means, sanctus means one who is holy. So in that sense, it means one who has the beatific vision. So insofar as all the good angels have the beatific vision, they're confirmed in grace, they are saints uh, insofar as they are holy from the grace of God. But in the general, normal uh, talk here on earth, we normally attribute, apply the word saint to men and women that were been canonized, or those unknown who are were all angels created at the same time, or are they only one like we are? They were all created at the same time, uh, because general, the general teaching is that before uh, before the world, right, the very, the very they were created at the very first instant. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the angels, outside of time, because he doesn't have a body, he's uh, uh, not in time in the sense that we are. So when we die, our guardian angel can be assigned to somebody else. Is that what you mean? Um, yeah, we, we don't know. Uh, I mean, certain, certain people have private revelations, statements, but the church has never stated otherwise. Can any of the fallen angels be redeemed by the sacrifice of Christ? Uh, no. But certain people have taught that. Most famously, Origen. You've heard of Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. He was a pioneer in theology. He was making a lot of speculation. And he taught that at the very end of the world, there will be a universal redemption. It's called Originism. He just, he just posited this as a possibility. But some years later, the council, uh, Catholic Council condemned at least his disciples who were teaching that very, very literally. As our Lord says uh, in Matthew 25, the goat and the sheep, and the, those who are damned, will be uh, away from me, depart from the evil deeds, into the fire which was prepared for the devils and the angels, uh, the fallen angels. That is uh, for all eternity. Did you say that good angels have a free will? Mm -hmm. No. So can they go from good to bad? They could before their confirmation. Uh, so was at the beginning of creation that that happened? At the beginning of creation, it happened in an instant. They were created. They were given a, a choice, and they made that choice. It just happened like that because, again, they're outside of time. They had full knowledge of what they were going to uh, going to choose. So the good angels are confirmed, but were elevated rather into the supernatural. Uh, vision of God. The, the fallen angels lost the grace they had, because all angels were created in grace, but they were not brought up in the glory. They were given uh, a grace of, of faith.
to, to understand God and what he's asking them. But when the angels fell, they lost what grace they had. And now they rely simply on their, their natural power. Uh, that comes with their angelic essence. Since you indicated that the angels had a finite beginning, would it hold true that there's also a finite number? Uh, yes, there is a discrete, finite number of angels. So at the beginning, all angels that ever exist, will ever exist, were, were created at that time, and they all fit in some way into one of the nine players. One more? Sure. One more. I know uh, we're supposed to have lots of respect for our angels because they're far more perfect than we are. Is it okay for us to pray to the difference if I want more love of God, I can pray to the seraphim if I want prayer for whatever? Perfect. That's wonderful. Yes. You can do that. And the, pay close attention to the preface at Holy Mass, right before the priest prays the Holy, Holy, Holy. The text, the English translation doesn't reflect this, and we hope the new English uh, missile that's going to be approved, we hope, by next year, better reflects the Latin. But the Latin text speaks about uh, calling upon the, the, the domination, the powers, the virtues. It lists a lot of the choirs right before we go on into the, the holy, holy, holy. There the priest is invoking the angels that we be brought up into the angels, or as it were, the angels be brought down to us. And just as a final comment, St. Catherine of Siena had this beautiful vision. At that moment was Sanctus, 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 holy, holy, holy. She saw, she was in the church, she saw the heavens open up above the priest with blue sky, and down came the angels, and they formed a circle above the priest in the sanctuary. And they got on their knees in the air, and they were adoring God in the Eucharist below them. So that's what happens at every Holy Mass. The whole sanctuary is filled up with all the angels. So we're not alone. And that's the Mount Zion that we read about Hebrews. The angels are with us to praise God for all eternity. Thank you.